Hello, welcome to ENT in a Nutshell. My name is Ashlyn Asiri, and today we are here with Dr. David Haynes to discuss mentorship in otolaryngology. Dr. Haynes, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Well, today we're discussing a topic that doesn't follow our usual recipe for patient workup and treatment, but this topic is arguably one of the most important factors in career development for all medical professionals. We're going to define mentorship and its style variations, go over what to look for in a mentor, and how to be a receptive mentee. Before we begin, I'd like to introduce our guest speaker. Dr. Haynes is a senior professor of otolaryngology at a busy tertiary medical center here in the United States. He is the director of skull-based surgery and cochlear implant programs at his institution, and he serves as the vice chair of academics and the director of relationship development for the Department of Otolaryngology. He has been a fellowship director for over 15 years, and he has trained countless residents. Despite this impressive pedigree, he consistently points to his mentorship relationships as his most important accomplishments. His trainees and mentees have an impressive track record, and today we're going to shine some light on developing productive mentorship relationships. So let's jump right in. Dr. Haynes, you have always demonstrated the importance of history and development in understanding a topic. If we follow your formula, can you start by telling us a little bit about the derivation of the term mentor? Yes, actually, a mentor was actually a person. In uh, Homer's The Odyssey, mentor was the person that Odysseus entrusted his son's development with while he uh, went off to fight the the Trojan War. If you recall, he was gone a long time, decades, uh, much like a surgical residency length. And uh, But it's interesting that the word mentor is actually a, a person's name. That is really interesting. Can you tell us a little bit about the history and the role of mentorship model in medicine? If you look at the Hippocratic Oath, which we've all uh, read, but I, I encourage you to read it again and just, just look it up in Wikipedia. The entire first paragraph of the Hippocratic Oath is dedicated to teaching phrases like, I will teach the art, I will willingly teach whoever wants to learn. It appears uh, multiple times in that first paragraph uh, before uh, the second paragraph until you see uh, the phrase, to help the sick. The mentorship model in, in surgery is, uh, is, is critical. You've often heard a self-taught uh, guitarist or a self-taught uh, golf swing, uh, but there are no self-taught surgeons. We have a uh, seven ten-year curriculums that uh, are, are dedicated to teaching. I think uh, the length of time is standard, but the, the differences in, in the quality of the teaching is what we're trying to achieve uh, uh, in my institution. So there can certainly be some parallels drawn between athletic coaching and medical training. In your mind, how do you compare these two? Well, I read a lot of books uh, written by coaches, and I really enjoy that. If you think of the parallels, you know, to, to make a college team, you, you know, you've, you've had to train for long periods of time. Uh, there's been a selection and cutting of players. And then all of a sudden, a coach has a group of highly performing people uh, that it, he has to or she has to then win championships with. One of the best books I've ever read is by Pat Summit, Coach former coach of the uh, Tennessee women's team. She's got a great book called Reach for the Summit. It, it was written uh, years ago. But if you think that they take this highly uh, functional group of people, she has to teach them the basic skills, but she has to teach them also how to be leaders on the court, off the court, uh, that, to make their grades. 
Uh, they're judged, though. Uh, you know, if you look at a coach, they're judged every time they play. The score, you know, how many championships did you win? Our uh, feedback is, is less specific, right? We're not judged. We, we don't have a score to look at. We don't have a, uh, a winning record or losing record. And it, it's difficult to know how well you're doing and, until you, you look at the people that you've trained uh, and you look at how they're doing in their careers. Uh, but it's it's very hard. It takes a while to know what what you're doing right, what you're doing wrong, as opposed to a coach. A coach uh, doesn't win; they're 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 done. And uh, so they have to to be lo- looking at this strategy where they're looking at all of these things uh, in order to to succeed. So we've talked a little bit about the definition of a mentor, but let's dive into some of the details. Can you describe the difference between active and passive mentorship, and how this plays a role in training? Yes, I've studied that. I'm, I, in my training, a lot of the training was passive, much like watching a surgeon in the clinic, observing, watching in the OR. And, and there's a role for that, certainly, especially when you're young. You, know, you just want to watch everything and know the protocol. There was very little, though, active teaching, you know, an active men- mentorship model in, in the old school. It was much more passive. I think as we move forward, concept of uh, actively uh, teaching and actively mentoring uh, is is much more common now. I I am uh, known to talk all the time. I'm always I say I have seven years to to train uh, someone specifically two years to train a fellow, and I I'm always talking. And uh, when I'm making coffee, I'm telling people about you know let's talk about this patient, and here's here's the four options we can do. This is why we would do this. Uh, let me tell you about a, a, a case where I was an expert witness on where somebody did the opposite and why that, how that could have been prevented. I mean, I'm talking. But I really think there's a, a role for that, and, and I think that's sort of what, what a fellowship is all about. It's, it's more than just learning how to do the surgery. It's learning all the aspects of the field and professionalism and development. So I think you summed it up quite well as far as your teaching method um, and how important it is for, to have constant communication. What are some of the other qualities that mentees should look for in a great mentor? I think we all have a certain style. I think one thing that I, I've I've always do is the first case that when I'm working with someone is I'll say let me let me do this. That's part of that observational mentorship, and I'm going to explain everything I do. And as you know, I have a method for how to put your gown on, how to put your gloves on, how to uh, drape the patient. You've heard me always talk about that that one resident who put the drapes on wrong and caused a cochlear implant uh, infection and how important uh, that is and, and you know, th- that uh, uh, every detail is important. But, but I don't expect the residents and fellows to be mind readers, you know, without at least showing them one time how you do everything and why you do it. I think that's one reason I'm talking a lot is because there's a method uh, and a ma- to the madness and, and why I do something, and I'll explain exactly why we do something. And I think that communication is quite uh, critical. You know, I've studied the qualities of, of how to teach and, and some of the uh, books that I'll share with you, uh, Grit by Angela Duckworth. And I'm really a big fan of Anders Ericsson's work. Uh, both Duckworth and Ericsson have sev- have books, but his book is called Peak. I mean, they have several academic papers that you can search. Um, the 10,000-hour rule is from Anders Ericsson. And it's often misunderstood. You know, you've heard that phrase, if you do something for 10,000 hours, you'll be an expert. And, and it's actually not true. And Ericsson brings that out. Ericsson 
is uh, he studies mastery, he studies expertise, and he's an expert uh, on expertise. And if you study his work, it's not doing something for 10,000 hours. It's doing something for 10,000 hours where there's intense focus and coaching, what he terms deliberate practice. Uh, I'll give you an example. You know, there's we all know these foursomes in, in golf where these guys get together twice a week and they play. And at the end of 20 years, they've played golf for 10,000 hours. And I would argue that they're better than average at, at most at the end of 10,000 hours of playing golf. Yet if one breaks off um, and is gone for a month and comes back and he's better, uh, they'll say, how come you're better? If you Did you go take some lessons? Uh, so it's not just doing something over and over again. The concept that there are super skilled people, uh, super skilled residents or surgeons, uh, you really don't see that. And I'll give you an example for that, too. Just say you take some gifted athletes, basketball players. Uh, they are gifted. And you take 100 and say, just we're gonna, you're, you're going to play golf now. And you guys are gifted athletes, and you play golf for 10,000 hours. Uh, but you take one of those out, and you say, over here, uh, we're going to take you, and we're going to teach you the game. We're going to work on every aspect of the game. There's no doubt in anyone's mind who will be the better golfer. It's the one who's coached and taught. And then there's bet better ways to teach and better ways to coach. Uh, but And then that you could take 10,000 athletes, and you won't find that gifted athlete that will has such a, uh, a gift or innate skill that could just teach himself how and better than the one who's being coached. And so we've taken those concepts uh, into to medicine and have um, clearly have tried to improve the way we, we train people. So when we try to unpack what makes a good mentor, can you provide some tips for those of us looking to improve our mentorship skills? Yeah, sure. I was on a panel um, with uh, Daryl Brackman and Harry Van Lovern and Florian Rosser at, at the Mayo uh, Clinic uh, Vestibular Neuroma Conference. And, you know, hats off to uh, Matt Carlson, who was organizing the, the bulk of that, that meeting. Instead of the typical panels, he had a panel on mentoring and teaching. And I, I think we need more of that. But I, I'm sitting there taking notes down and learning. And Harry uh, Van Lovern uh, went over his 10 rules for uh, uh, training and mentoring. And we wrote a paper about this. It, it'll be in Otology Neurotology coming out uh, soon, I hope. But his rule number one, which I agree with, is to become a master surgeon. I think this is an overarching goal. I can't emphasize that enough. I think we've all seen surgeons come into a medical center where they're not a master surgeon, where their training was uh, uh, subpar. I, after seeing that early in my career, uh, I made a vow to myself that no, none of our trainees would ever be in that position, and that's an unenviable position to be in. We see people uh, coming in who can't write a grant or maybe can't publish a paper or can't write, and you can develop those skills uh, later. But when you arrive at a medical center, you have a patient, you have an operating room, you have residents watching you, and uh, it's unfair to all of those players for you to be unskilled, and, and that fault's not from the person necessarily, it's some, it, it, some of the fault lies in, in the places in which they trained and, and the teaching that they received. So being a master surgeon, I can't emphasize enough, you have to be a master in order to teach uh, uh, those skill sets to, to uh, the people you're training. 
You know, if you look at the cost of doing a fellowship that you give up, you give up uh, the salary of a, a attending or a, you know, a private practitioner, you're moving, you're living in an apartment, you're sometimes separated from your spouse. And for us to not pay the ultimate attention towards maximizing that time for you, we're training uh, the future leaders of the field, and, and you've given a lot to us just to be here as a trainee, and we want to give everything back to you, and we want you to, when you come to my institution and train with us, we want you to leave, uh, if nothing else, as a master surgeon. And there's several ways to do that. I know one of his rules I like is the rule number five, uh, the white tile. Uh, I think some of us do that more than others. I'm probably could do it a little more. Um, the white tile is where you, you leave someone, uh, uh, you leave them alone. You, you may go to the bathroom. You may go to the clinic to see a patient. Uh, you, you might um, be even uh, possibly uh, helping another surgeon in another room. And, and that's a real reality check. I mean, that's a forced assessment of, of what your skill set is. And if you think about surgery, and I, I, we've all been in that moment where I wish I'd paid more attention. You know, I kind of go through the motions. I'm a bit of a daydreamer myself. I, I will listen to a book on, on Audible and not, you know, be daydreaming about something else and not paying attention. But that is, is a forced assessment. Those need to be distributed uh, throughout someone's training so that you know one of the best residents I've ever worked with. You know, we have multiple training sites, some with more autonomy than others. He went to um, one facility after working with me and came back and he, and he said, hey, listen, I, I, I don't want to even scrub on this case. I've got this notebook. I want to see how you do this because I, when I tried to do this meatoplasty or this mastoidectomy, you know, I thought I knew how to do it, but I didn't. He goes, I just want, I want to uh, just watch you do this. And he was one of the best people we've ever trained. He had that insight to know. And sometimes it's forced on you. You think you know how to do this case until you're, you're, you're there. You think you know how to solve this problem until you actually start to solve it. An, another important part of mentorship is uh, his, his rule, which I like, is to use accelerators. And we've built a lab, um, you know, a multi- million dollar uh, facility outfitted for our, our, our trainees to practice in. You know, it's uh, skull-based surgery allows the ability to practice unlike some other procedures. And there's, there's no excuse for not practicing. You know, if, you, if someone comes up to me and says, I want to play and win the Masters one day. I, I want to win the Masters golf tournament. I want to play in Wimbledon. And those people are practicing night and day, night and day. They get up in the morning and they pra- they're playing golf or tennis all day long. Yet, you know, when someone says, I want to be the best skull-based surgeon in the country, you're like, okay, let's just meet in a couple weeks and talk about it. And I'll say, were you in the lab since we met last time? No, you know, I've just been busy doing things. Could you imagine the person who just stated that they want to play in the Masters that went two weeks without playing golf? Yet, uh, I think this concept of practicing in the lab and uh, in a facility that was built specifically for you to, to practice in. I can't emphasize that enough, that, that this is your opportunity. You don't learn in the operating room. You don't practice in the operating room. These are people, that's, that's like saying you're going to go uh, into the NFL and practice uh, when, you, when you make the team for the, or the New Orleans Saints. You're not going to practice then and learn then. You're going to learn long before you ever get there. And if you go in as a trainee, knowing um, and practicing and knowing what you're doing, you'll get to do more. 
right? You'll get, you know, we have this uh, phrase, let me take a look at that. Now, let me, let me, let me look under that microscope, meaning you're pretty much being moved out. And uh, sometimes it's because look, I, I can't really tell what's going on. There's something's weird. You'll be able to sit in the chair longer uh, if you practice outside of the operating room and you'll do more and you'll end up being a better surgeon. I think you've brought up some incredibly important points for those of us who are transitioning uh, into senior resident or fellow positions where we're starting to teach some of the younger residents how to operate and how to kind of navigate the academic medicine. When you have identified a mentor that you want to work with, what are some of the building blocks of a good mentorship relationship that we should work on? Well, I think understanding who you're working with. You know, if you read that Pat Summit book, you could tell that not everyone is is mentored and uh, pushed in the same way. Some people can get pushed where they break down. Some people can get pushed where it doesn't phase them. And I think every good coach, if you think of Nick Saban, Pat Summit, uh, they know how to individually read people and to push them to maximize their 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 greatness, if you will. And I think we don't do that. We kind of have this recipe where everyone's going to get the same level of mentorship or the same style. But, you know, as we move forward into a more active, instead of passive uh, mentorship model, but a more active mentorship model, I think knowing how to push someone's buttons uh, without breaking them down is the key. So we've touched upon active and passive mentorship. What are some of your thoughts on structured versus unstructured mentorship programs? Yeah, I think as we try to structure our mentorship program here, it's been a bit of a challenge. You know, there's been some uh, doctors don't like anything forced upon them, right? Uh, It's always funny to me when someone's studying for their boards, for example, and Uh, you know, here you are, you're going to hang out your shingle one day and say, I'm a world's expert in otolaryngology, for example. And it's like, I don't want to be studying for these boards, you know, and, you know, what you're, you're wanting to be an expert. You know, if you were an expert on the Battle of Gettysburg, you wouldn't be saying, I don't want to be reading about this Battle of Gettysburg. Well, you know, but it's something about being forced to do something that as physicians, we, we don't like. And so what happens a lot, you know, you get assigned a a resident to mentor and uh, they may be a plastic surgeon and you're like, well, I I can't help you much in this. Let me pass you off to to so and so. So a lot of this is kind of wandering around uh, most programs uh, looking for the person that you you connect with that's in your field. And it's different from other fields. I was in a, a fraternity in college. And you know, we had these young pledges, and the first time a pledge messed up, the many ways that a college freshman can can mess up, you know, the question was, who's their big brother, right? They're not doing a very good job, right? You had this mentor in college, but when a resident uh, or fellow, uh, you know, doesn't really have that formal relationship, you, you, we blame the resident fellow for messing up, not their, quote, big brother or big sister in a sorority, right? Do you think that a structured model Uh, does a better job of ensuring time together? Is it effective in that manner, or does it create more roadblocks? You know, as I I look at bigger programs, you have to have a structured model. Someone could just really fall through the cracks. And, and, you know, ENT, otolaryngology, certainly our fellowship is much smaller, and no one's going to fall through the cracks. But uh, uh, So we may be a little less structured, 
for, for that, but a big program, say medicine or cardiology, without that, you know, somebody could really fall through the cracks and slip through and, and not receive the training that they, they should have re- received and, and deserved to receive. So that kind of brings us to our next point of discussing how culture plays a role in mentorship. You've mentioned bigger programs, and I think across programs, even within the same specialty, we have different cultures. What role do you feel that culture plays in the efficacy of a mentorship program? You know, I'm always talking about strategy, and and, um, strategy literally means, it's Greek again, um, for think as a general would think. Take care of all the small aspects, not just the fighting, uh, and not just the surgery, but but the, the entire program. I've been interested in this most of my life. Um, I had surgery when I was a young kid at uh, in Louisville, Kentucky, at this place called the Kleinert Hand Center, and uh, this was the mecca. But it was in Louisville, Kentucky. And later in my life, you know, I come to Nashville, Tennessee, and the one of the meccas to train was the Mike Glasscock's otology group uh, across the street in, in Nashville. Other places to train were in Zurich, Switzerland, and, and Los Angeles. And I was thinking, you know, how do these meccas is, exist in Zurich, Louisville, Nashville? Mike Glasscock's uh, original office where people flocked to train and people came from other countries to have surgery was looked somewhat like a mobile home. I took a picture of it. I hang it on my wall and walk by it every day. And I look, and you think of what happened here uh, that uh, it created this greatness, uh, where you have these ivory towers and you know fountains and and uh, a lot of that I think is uh, mastery. You you have to have that surgical mastery for people to want to come to train, and patients to want to come to have that surgery there. A lot of it is is one person decided at, at all those institutions. I, I mentioned that we're going to be great, right? We are going to be great at everything. We're going to create a strategy, and look at every aspect of everything we do, and we're going to be a, a great institution. And that's how you, and that's what I teach our fellows, that you can build this Mecca-like mentality uh, if you pay attention to these small details uh, anywhere you want to, I- anywhere, because it's been done, right? It's it's not like a you know, never been done, you know, to have these meccas in small, relatively small, unassuming places. You know, when we kind of summarize the qualities that we look in a mentor, a lot of it comes down to communication, leadership, and insight into what the future should look like. And I think when you summarize the goals of the culture as you just did, I think that really emphasizes the role that the mentor plays in leading the field. When we have mentors around us that are in positions high up in leadership or who have made great contributions to the field that they're working in, sometimes they can be difficult to work with because they're so busy um, with their different academic positions So what advice do you have for trainees in selecting mentors um, as far as availability goes and how you find somebody that's going to be working well with you? Well, I have a funny story for that. I I think I'm known to tell stories. I think I was elected most likely to tell a story in my MBA class, which kind of uh, hit home. But we were taking one of our best fellows out and uh, to dinner. I don't know why. I think all of our uh, our wives were out of town, and it was George Wana, who's now the chair at uh, 
New York Eye and Ear Institute and, and one of our best fellows we've ever had. George was a, a, a young uh, faculty member at that point. I was uh, obviously the senior. And we took this fellow out beginning his second year and uh, to, to tell him what to work on and what to pay attention to this year and the responsibilities of teaching the, the upcoming uh, fellow. I was the program director, and George was George was really interested in mentorship, and so he was the associate program director. And here we are, a program that takes one person a year, but we had uh, you know, two people that had to run it. It's kind of funny if you think about it, but we're sitting there with this fellow, and uh, somehow the word mentorship came up, and how to, the question you just asked, how do you select one? And he said, uh, uh, I said, well, you know, you look for someone. It doesn't have to be here at this program, so even someone uh, in another program at, on the campus or uh, another specialty or even in another medical center. He goes, well, I don't have to look very far for a mentor. Uh, they're sitting right here at this table. And I said, oh, please stop. You're embarrassing me, you know. And um, he goes, yeah, the best mentor in the world. I'm looking at him right now, George Wana. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, okay. I thought he was talking about me. But, uh, you know, George was only a few years out of his training at that point and a young faculty member. But I was so proud because, you know what, you don't really need to be a senior person to be a good mentor. You just have to be attentive and, you know, and, and guiding and um um, you know, George was a, a good mentor. And, and, and I think as a group, we all mentor the fellows, right? We all have our strengths and weaknesses and, and things we're good at. And uh, we try to give leadership positions in certain areas, even within our small field of neurotology. We have a quality and safety director, an endoscopic ear director, a radiation oncology director. So everyone has a chance for leadership and mentorship. And, and Part of the culture that we talked about is it comes from the top where the leader has to establish that culture of mentorship and, and then make sure that all of the faculty are uh, competent at that and to a point where, you know, the, the f- fellows pick the junior faculty as their mentors, not, not always the senior faculty. You bring up a great point that you don't have to have just one mentor. And in fact, most of us have different mentors for different reasons. And we can tailor that to the strengths of the mentor and their relative accessibility for that specific task or uh, skill you're looking to develop. So once you've selected your mentor, uh, as a mentee, what advice do you have for trainees in developing mentorship relationships and what trainees should do to get the most out of that relationship? It's a good question. You know, there is another author that I that I have uh, looked at their work, Carol Dweck, and, and she writes a lot of, about a growth mindset. And uh, that concept is, is that uh, you have to be willing to be taught, you have to be willing to, to learn, and you have to be willing to take criticism. We've all seen, and, and you know, as, as a resident, Ashley, you've taught other residents and medical students, and you see a vast uh, difference between those. And the ones who don't learn, imagine, I'll, I'll use the golf analogy again, okay? If if I say I'm terrible at golf, which I am, and I'm going to go pay someone $100 an hour, which is probably more than what I make, to teach me to do better. And if they come in uh, and say, you're gripping this wrong, and I can't say, well, no, I really, this is the way I like to hold it, right? 
and they say, well, your stance is wrong or your swing is terrible, you know. And I'll go, no, I like doing it this way. This is the way it feels good to me. And then they should say, okay, then just keep being terrible at what you do. And I have to go in there and, and you know, and most of the time we are, right? We've made that decision that I need to do better. When you get an MBA, you've said, I don't know anything about this. I really want to know about it. And, and you know, some accounting professor will say, you're terrible at, at this spreadsheet. You, know, you need to do better. Here's your grade, you know. Uh, and so we're, we're in a growth mindset saying, I, I want to learn this better. Uh, yeah, tell me what I'm doing wrong. Uh, yeah, okay, thanks, thanks. Okay, I'm, I'm going to practice this and we'll come back again and, and then you'll, you'll grade me on how much better I am. And that's a growth mindset. That, that means I am willing to admit that I'm not good. And have you ever worked with a resident and say, don't, don't be holding the drill like that? And, uh, uh, well, this is why I'm, I like, I like, I'm holding it like this because I, I'm like, well, <laughs> you know, um, those people don't get better, right? And, and you have to pull them aside and say, listen, I'm going to really uh, tell you everything you're doing wrong. And you have to be really uh, ready to accept that. And it's, you're here, you're here for two years. And if you do something new, that means that's something new you're going to be bad at, right? And there's going to be a, a person better than you. And that person, if they give you feedback, that means they, they actually care for you, right? Uh, that golf coach, for example, let's say I go out there and I'm just just terrible, missing the ball, slicing the ball, and he just sits there or she sits there and, and oh, that's good. You're doing a great job, David. Yeah, uh, okay. The end of that hour would be a wasted hour for me, a wasted time, and I may have liked them for not criticizing me, uh, but it would have been a terrible coaching job uh, and a waste of everyone's time and ineffective. Anders Ericsson talks about that, that the key for a teacher is to give immediate feedback. And the key for the, the mentee is to be willing to accept that feedback and change. What does, uh, you know, uh, Nick Saban and those guys, why do those coaches have a whistle, right? They, they blow that whistle, stop. Okay, you did that wrong. Immediate uh, and effective feedback. They don't say, you know, Last month in practice, you, you did something wrong, right? It, it's You have to be intentional. You have to give that feedback immediately. And, and, you know, these performance evaluations are kind of funny, right? Like once a year, we're, we're going to get together. You're go we're going to um, tell you what you did wrong. Uh, why, why wait six months, right? I'm going to tell you what you did wrong every day and what you did right and what you did a good job at. Um, and that's that's how great coaches coach, and that's how great players get better and great surgeons get better. Dr. Haynes, you bring up a really important topic for residents, and that is feedback. I know that from personal experience that I frequently get feedback from all of the otologists in our department, but certainly when we get busy or when we have to rush off to prepare for the next case, sometimes there isn't time or it slips one's mind to give residents feedback do you have any recommendations for trainees to politely elicit that feedback? You're right. We are very busy. Isn't it, isn't it ironic that we're too busy to teach, even though we're a teaching institution? You're, you've often heard me say, all right, you ask me that after clinic, right? Or when we're walking to our car, you ask me that question. We'll answer it then. And I want to tell you something about this case tomorrow, or I want to tell you something about the case we just did today. Uh, come find me, you know, later, or call me, or call me tonight at home. Uh, those are opportunities to give feedback that aren't in the middle of a acoustic tumor removal. 
We have to have um, the training. You're very good at this, Ashley. To, to, you're, you you look for feedback. That's that's what good uh, trainees do. They they want feedback. You're here for that, right? But some you have to say, I okay, I'm going to give you feedback on this rotation, right? It's and the feedback will most of the time be bad. I did, I did an MBA late in life. I was 55, and those professors gave me all kinds of feedback about how bad I was at Excel or something, you know, and sometimes in the form of grades and sometimes verbally, but you were ready for that, right? So so I, I'll have to say you have to be ready for you to get better. I mean, imagine the tennis coach saying, okay, I'm going to give you this lesson, but when I tell you to change your grip, um, you know, you don't get mad at me, right? Because we all want to be uh, liked. Uh, we want to have relationships with our, our residents, but you're doing the trainee a disservice to watch them do something poorly and then go out into the world and continue to do something poorly. Um, we talked at the beginning that that that's, was my vow to never have anybody that trained under me be put in that very terrible, awkward situation where you come into a, an academic medical center somewhere where you're un, you underperform uh, surgically and uh, that's not fair to the patient, if, if nothing else, and certainly not not fair to uh, the people that they're going to train, and and to the medical center, and, and, and the the need to give that feedback before your I mean your training. You're not supposed to be good, right? You're, you're not supposed to come in there. We we want you to be in the lab to be ready to learn, but you're you're learning, and then we have a finite amount of time to train you. We've tried to optimize that time, but that time is optimized by giving you giving you hard uh, feedback on what you need to work on. So you bring up the point of asking for feedback, and I think you know, as a resident, just from my personal experience, asking for that feedback shows that you're interested. And most of our attendings have always looked at, upon that very positively, and they know that you're willing to learn, which I think is a huge part of that relationship is when the mentor and the mentee are both on the same page and both are uh, aiming towards the same goals. When we talk about working with a mentee and their level of enthusiasm, how much does that impact how you go about that relationship and how important is that in building that relationship? Like I said, we want to be liked, and but is Nick Saban liked when you know by the person he's yelling at, or, or Pat Summit? You know, you think of a hard coach. Uh, what people don't realize is if it weren't, you know, we're not yelling, but if we're telling you something that could make you better, then then that person cares more for you than someone who just turns and walks away. It may take you. Uh, you know, much of your life to realize that. But if you look back at the people who taught you the most, uh, they gave you the most um, perhaps negative feedback, not negative, but the most constructive um, advice. And sometimes it's not in the OR. It's it's regarding professionalism or, uh, you know, how to manage something in the clinic, how to manage coworkers, um, you know, uh, professional advice. And I think the fellowship offers that. I think when you look at why, why is a fellowship so important, you're really hanging out and learning all these things. And, and our, you know, we're always talking. I'm, Revis is a talker. I'm a talker. Uh, George Juana was a talker. You know, Matt O'Malley is a talk. You know, we're, we're talking, 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 always trying to impart some form of wisdom to someone 
who who has to listen to to what because they they can't just walk away from us. You know, so we we enjoy that, and I think we enjoy the concept that at the end of your training, you've imparted with not just surgical wisdom, uh, but all kinds of uh, wisdom on on how to manage uh, the world of neurotology. So we've talked a lot about surgical mastery, uh, a little bit about research, uh, and how the mentor plays a role in those two skill sets. But from personal experience, I know that a lot of what we learn from our mentors is about leadership and how to develop your career. Can you speak a little bit to that and what kinds of wisdom you impart and how you do that? Yeah, I think that one of the reasons there's a relative lack of um, papers in our journals and uh, lectures at our um, meetings on mentorship and leadership is it's it's sort of uh, in a bit uh, embarrassing to 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 do that and just because you're proclaiming some sort of expertise in those areas right when you asked me to do this I, I was like uh, you know let me go study this and, and you know there, there's a I don't want to say arrogance, but you know, when you give a talk on leadership, there always, to me, it always seemed like there was some, some arrogance to that. Like I'm, you know, I'm, uh, I know all about this. Let me talk about that. Unlike, I do know about how to do ear surgery, and because I do that all day, uh, and I'm, I'm learning both of those things: learning leadership and newer techniques and in, in surgery as we go. But some of what we've developed in otology. And our neurotology fellowship is leadership training uh, and many aspects of that. And and if we look at why some people's careers aren't where they want to be, it's usually because they're not smart. Everyone here in our residency is super smart. You know, that's the basketball team where you get cut. You know, you would have been cut a long time ago if you weren't smart. If If you look at why they didn't achieve their goals, even some that were terminated, uh, it was not because they weren't smart. And the concept of someone being great at everything but surgery, you know, where they just don't have the hands for that, that's pretty rare too, right? Uh, that That's usually if someone's not a good surgeon. They're also not good at a whole host of other things. And so while I said that by far and away, a surgical mastery is, is what's where you start, right? You're going to go to your job, wherever that is, knowing how to do the surgery and that that is key but all these other things that help you succeed uh, a lot of it we teach on the fly you know we have a little coffee room here where i think my mouth's moving more than my hands and while we make coffee and we're, we're going to talk about things usually things that aren't uh, about how to take an acoustic neuroma out uh, that will make you a, a success. And, and some of the things I learned in my MBA, when I, when I did my MBA, there were lectures on leadership and leading teams and conflict resolution. And, and, like, and, and you know, I looked across, I was 50-something, and I looked across the room, and there was some 21-year-old kid there. And I'm like, I, my resident right now is leading a team. You know, they're in the ICU leading a team rounding on our patients. Yet we don't have formal training in, in that. Why is this 21-year-old kid who hadn't run a lemonade stand getting these lectures? Why don't we give those lectures? And so we're trying to formalize that process uh, and take these topics. And, and uh, we have lectures in the morning. Some of our lectures are not on you know, facial nerve reanimation, but they're on, on leadership and topics related to that. And like I said, 
you know, that these programs that exist in, in smaller places, and it's because someone decided they're going to make that place great. One of my favorite things to ask, you know, someone who wants to go into a different field or wants to do a sinus fellowship somewhere, wants to do a, a voice fellowship somewhere, and like, why do you want to go there? Uh, what's the top program? Why is it the top program? And, and I'm taking notes, too, because if they say something we're not doing, then we're going to start doing it because we want to be the top program. We want to be changing and learning from other people. And this is done. Granted, these leadership talks aren't done in the middle of the day. They're done before we start, after, you know, after the clinic's over, while we're walking to the OR, while we're making coffee. Uh, and uh, just sometimes there are little stories, little anecdotes uh, how how to even treat your referring base? You know, the, the, my referring doctors, we have a very strong relationship with them. Uh, these guys are often smarter than me, better board scores than me, better grades than me, went to better schools than me, and they're out there seeing these these patients. And you know, we treat our referring docs with a lot of respect, and I teach our our guys to do that as well in their practice and how to build a practice and the leadership piece of what you do if you want to build a great program uh, is critical. So I think you've brought up some incredible points throughout this discussion. I think that, you know, you don't want to call yourself an expert in mentorship, but having gone through your program, I think that's an appropriate title. And it's been an honor to interview you today. I'll go ahead and jump into a summary of our discussion as we usually do. First off, the mentorship model has played a critical role in teaching since the beginning of surgical training, even being mentioned in the Hippocratic Oath. Mentorship programs should strive to be active with constant teaching interactions and exchange of ideas. Great mentors can be difficult to define, but they commonly exhibit resilience and grit. They have developed a mastery of surgery and continue to grow and improve through deliberate practice. Both structured and unstructured mentorship models are practiced, and each has benefits and drawbacks. Structured models provide a framework for learning through formal didactics and ensure face-to-face -face time, but at times they can feel a little bit artificial. Unstructured models may not provide formal teaching, but they can be effective when both the mentor and the mentee are dedicated, work together frequently, and communicate effectively. A combination of the two is most commonly practiced. Mentees should think both short and long-term about career and personal goals and should seek mentors that reflect these aspirations. A hardworking and enthusiastic attitude towards training and reception of criticism for a mentorship relationship is the most critical aspect. Dr. Haynes, it's been an absolute honor interviewing you about mentorship in otolaryngology today. I would just like to wrap it up, but if you have any final comments, we'd be happy to hear from you. No, actually, thanks for addressing this topic. I think it's an under-addressed topic, and what you and Matt Carlson are doing with this, this venue and this unique learning um, opportunity, I'm, I'm proud to be a part of it. Thank you so much.